This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. You're listening to Quick to Listen. I'm Mark Galley. I'm the editor-in-chief at Christianity Today. Uh, Each week, we go beyond hashtags and hot takes and set aside time to explore the reality behind a major cultural event. And I'm joined today by my co-host, Morgan Lee. Hey, Morgan. We've been doing it for three weeks now. Yes. I just wonder how you're doing. The weather's glum. The Giants are going home. The 49ers are doing lousy. How's it going? You see me. I think I smile every day in the office. Yeah. You put on a good front. Whoa. Anyway, (laughs) so our uh, theme this week is uh, some statements made by Donald Trump about how he's not going to trust the election, which he thinks is rigged. That leads to a lot of questions about various and sundry Christian uh, cultural institutions and its democratic experiment. And we want to talk about that. And who's going to talk about that with us, Morgan? So actually, we brought on a former coworker of yours, believe it or not. So this week, we'll be speaking with Alicia Kaufman, who right now is at Baylor University, where she is an assistant professor of history. Previously, she was the assistant professor of church history at the University of Dubuque Theological Seminary. But the reason that you know her really well is because she worked at Christianity Today back in the day as the managing editor of Christian History magazine. Her first book, The Christian Century and the Rise of the Protestant Mainline, came out a couple years ago. Hey, Alicia, it's great to have you here. Yes, it's great to be here. Yeah, it's good to reconnect with you, Alicia. I just remember when you worked at uh, Christian History, I uh, was just so impressed with you, and I knew we weren't going to be able to hold on to you long, and I'm glad to see you've moved on to bigger and better things than a quarterly magazine. And that's how I got into the field of church history and history. Um, I was an English literature major in undergrad, and it was really on the magazine that put me on the you know meteoric trajectory that I have been on. Ever. <laughs> there you go. How did you find the job posting, Alicia? So I started at Christianity Today as an editorial intern my senior year at Wheaton. And I was in the online services department, which was still pretty new back then. I was the only editorial person over in the online department. Times have changed. Yeah, yeah, they have. One of the projects in that department was the Christian History CD-ROM, and that was the cutting-edge technology. Mark remembered me from working with me on the CD-ROM. So then when an assistant job opened up at Christian history, I was able to move there. And then almost immediately, Mark abandoned me for CT. Uh, Yeah, no excuses. (laughs) Except that you were one of the few people who was interested in history who could actually write a decent sentence and paragraph. So I knew the Christian history was going to be in good hands. All right. What are we talking about today, Mark? I will tell you at the time, that's what Donald Trump said at the last candidate debate when asked if he would accept the election result on November 8th. The Republican candidate has repeatedly claimed that the election is rigged against him. Two weeks ago, he tweeted, of course, there is a large scale voter fraud happening on and before Election Day. Opinion polls suggest that Trump's charges of a rigged election have struck a nerve because 41, according to one survey, 41 percent of voters believe him when they say the election could be stolen. More than two thirds in another poll said uh, of Republicans believe that if Hillary Clinton is declared the winner, it will be because of illegal voting or vote rigging. But this, uh, when I read about this, it struck me that this is just one element in which 
there are segments of American life that are deeply distrustful of uh, the classic democratic institutions. For example, since the Michael Brown shooting in 2014, and especially after the acquittal of the officers who shot him, many in the black community have resurrected a longstanding charge that the justice system is rigged against blacks and for police. And they may have a point. Although it is estimated that there are 1,000 police shootings a year, no police officer has been convicted of manslaughter in the last two years. And then there's the economic system. It's often called free market capitalism, but many think it's anything but free. Bernie Sanders regularly made this accusation in his election run. Millions of Americans are giving up on the political process, Sanders said in a Democratic debate in February, because they understand the economy is rigged. So the question that occurred to me as I was thinking about all this, is the American experiment in which liberty and justice for all is made possible by our venerable democratic institutions like the courts, like the legislatures, like the economy, like the election system, is all this failing now? If so, what is the church's role in such a time? If not, how can Christians be a force for the common good in such a cynical and skeptical time? So before Mark and I jump in here and give our own gut check responses to some of the stuff that he shared, I just want to remind all of our listeners that Quick to Listen, this very podcast, is made possible by subscribers of Christianity Today magazine. All of you know that Get Christianity Today, we do a lot of global reporting. We try to do our best to give you coverage that is redemptive and honest. And sometimes there's a tension there, but we do our best to to sit in the heart of people, events, and ideas shaping the church and culture. So once again, as many of you longtime listeners know, it's $10 a year to get a subscription if you're on orderct.com slash quick to listen orderct.com slash quick to listen. You also can go back way into our archives and kind of see where we've been leading people for the past 60 years. As you all know, our 60th anniversary was last month. Well, the gut check would be when Trump said this again in this last debate, what did you think or feel immediately? There are times where I just have stopped paying attention to politics. And so I think that when I initially heard him talking about the elections, I just was like, well, he's had to find something else to to criticize or be frustrated about. And then a couple days after that, I, a lot of national public radio, which is what we listen to a lot in my house, they started digging deeper into why it was so problematic that a lot of these claims were being made. And then I started to find it a lot more troublesome. Like, I guess, kind of like looking over the the larger ramifications of questioning what our electoral system can and cannot do. You, Mark? Uh, Yeah, with many things that Trump says, I rolled my eyes, although I was noting how he was trying to qualify himself in some way. He wasn't out and out saying they were going to be rigged, but at that particular moment. But he said it at other times, and we all know pretty much how he feels about it. How about you, Alicia? I had pretty much the same reaction that Hillary Clinton did during the debate, that this is horrifying, that this is unprecedented to say, I don't know, I'll keep you in suspense. Um, that it was profoundly undemocratic and profoundly destabilizing. And you really wonder if Trump is going down, as it seems from all the available polls, all the reputable available polls now that he will be, what all is he taking down with him? Um, And I, I hope it doesn't get as far as faith in free democratic elections. There, I think there will be a lot that goes down with him. And it it just gets increasingly painful the more goes into that category. 
Well, let's get some historical perspective here because uh, you have a better view of that than most of us do. I mean, is this sort of talk where people are deeply suspicious of democratic institutions, uh, whether it's elections or courts or the economy? I mean, I suspect this isn't the first time people have said things are rigged, things are unjust. Oh, certainly not. And different aspects of American society have been singled out as seeming especially rigged or corrupt at various times and by different sectors of society. Elections, more at a, on a local level, the idea of political machines, Tammany Hall, late 19th century, or the classic eye roll about Chicago politics, vote early, vote often, all the Illinois governors are um, imprisoned. Pat Quinn's not in prison. Hey. Yeah. He was our governor right before Bruce Rauner became our governor. He was voted out. That that's that's something to rally around. But on on a local level, yes, there have been periods of intense distrust or um, sort of perpetual distrust. At a federal level, there was the the Bush Gore contested election that was very troubling in the short term, and and still claims years later that it was it was robbery. It should never have happened that way. But the assertions that Trump has been making, in the absence of any compelling evidence, that this voter fraud is widespread and that the whole federal election system is rigged. I can't think of a, a precedent or parallel for that. How about on the issues of uh, the court system being unjust? Of our branches of government, uh, the court system tends to enjoy higher approval ratings. Um, that also took a hit with uh, Bush v. Gore, um, that it seemed that the Supreme Court had been very politicized Justice Roberts said after that, after it became the Roberts court, I'm going to try to depoliticize it. He hasn't had a whole lot of luck with that. A lot of the decisions have split along the expected ideological lines. And now there is a lot more distrust. And of course, the, the challenge from Black Lives Matter and other activists showing how the justice system itself does seem to have been rigged. I haven't seen the documentary 13th yet, but I'm, I'm very interested in that, that the justice system was never intended to be fair to African-Americans. And so no surprise that it still isn't. At least that line of thinking has been out there for a while. For those that are not familiar, 13th is a documentary by Ava DuVernay that's been released on Netflix, and it's a critique of the United States criminal justice system. I wanted to just throw one thing out there about um, elections being rigged and say that, of course, they were rigged all the time under the Jim Crow era where there were tons of voter suppression efforts, such as poll taxes or a literary test or the grandfather clause, and those widely discouraged African-Americans from voting. Even when African-Americans went to the their actual site to, to go register to vote, they were often turned away. And so in, in that way, it really was rigged. That system very much was rigged against them. That reinforces your point that at a local level, this was more the case. But at a national level, we haven't seen such accusations until Trump came along. Like like both of you have mentioned, there is no real evidence to support the claims that the election is rigged. And yet there are polls that suggest a lot of people think so. Why, why is that? That is a vexing question. And in teaching introductory history surveys to undergraduates, one of the main things I want to get across to them is that claims require evidence. All kinds of historical claims that you want to make require evidence. And in this case, the evidence is not there. The evidence, yes, there are probably millions of people still on voter registration lists who are ineligible to vote, especially because they are dead. 
but unless these people show up at the polls or or somebody purporting to be these dead people show up at the polls, that's not fraud. That's clerical error. And if you want to look at any kind of systemic effort to suppress vote, to change the outcome, yes, it is rigged. It's called gerrymandering and it's called voter ID laws. Um, so it's a conversation that you can have. What what systemic barriers are there in place to a free and fair election? But it's not the ones that Trump is talking about. It's not when people are, are responding to their surveys. I believe that the system is rigged. I don't think that's what they're talking about. They're not talking about gerrymandering. They're not talking about voter ID laws. The very notion of gerrymandering itself as a way to reconstruct a district so that uh, one party can get their representative elected time and time again because of the way the, the district lines are, are drawn. So that, I mean, and technically that is rigging the election at some level. And it, it it's actually legal in our country. <laughs> I don't know exactly the questions that they're asking people, but I would imagine that if I did ask my friends and they did say something was rigged, it would come down to at least the effects of gerrymandering. I don't think that they necessarily say that people are being intimidated outside of the polls or that there's some other magic dust that's getting thrown in there. But just the fact that you have the same faces showing up there all the time, I would imagine that many people who do say something is rigged. It's another way of saying that the system does not work for you at that moment. Well, let's take the discussion now to the um, level of the uh, the courts. That's another level of institutions that uh, try to promote justice in our society. Uh, after one police shooting, I remember one black leader, I think it was the shooting in Minnesota recently, obviously was clearly tired of all the acquittals of police officers in these affairs. And I remember her distinctly saying, this time we must get a conviction, which struck me as a really interesting sentence in that most of the time communities leaders say, let's just hope justice is done or something vague like that. But this time she was saying she wanted a particular outcome to happen. Um, there have been times in American history when one gets the sense that a court verdict was given in order to bring balance to uh, justice books of previous unjust acquittals. And I mean, what is your thought or take on that, Alicia? It is troubling to me. Um, I'm also reminded of, I guess it was the, the district attorney in Baltimore uh, with the Freddie Gray case and, and trying to bring a very high level of charges against a number of people in the police department both making these announcements that she was going to pursue the case rigorously in an attempt to stave off rioting and violence within Baltimore, but also because she she was accused of doing this for her own career. She says that she was doing it for the community, and she's African-American herself, so I'm, I'm not going to try to parse those motives at all. But trying to say ahead of time that a, a certain outcome is, is desired that is unlikely to increase trust in the system, at least by some observers. But at the same time, never getting a conviction, the, the rates um, at which law enforcement officers are charged, tried, convicted for any of these excessive force type of claims is just, I think to, to any impartial observer, it, it seems staggeringly low. So not pursuing a case rigorously Will will increase distrust in some sectors. Pursuing a case rigorously will increase distrust in other sectors, and it's hard to imagine any course of action that would um, not just not please everyone, but even please a majority of the people who are watching with a vested interest. I don't know if 
the understanding of this time we must get a conviction. It's actually the right understanding of something if you really believe the problem is systemic. The problem will not actually be fixed in many ways if they get a conviction this time, but then it was you know, if there was, should have been a conviction the next time. It's a different set of issues, but um, because I was at Duke University during the lacrosse case, that's always my go-to example of overzealous prosecution. Several Duke lacrosse players were at a party. Um, they hired a stripper. One of those women later claimed to have been raped by multiple members of the team. Um, the case completely fell apart later because the the Durham DA was corrupt and pursuing this for his own career. There are documentaries about this. But the idea that there's sexual violence on campuses, we know that's true. And some of the way the Duke lacrosse team was treated while I was on campus was a little bit of a this time, let's get a conviction. Let's not let this slide. That show, let's show that we are trying to take this issue seriously. But it was the wrong case. And it had a chilling effect on other women even men who might try to come forward and say that they had been raped on a campus, they had been raped by athletes, because there's this doubt sown in all of our minds, well, it wasn't true that time, or the, the University of Virginia Rolling Stone case, it wasn't true that time, so how do I know that it's true this time? Trying to get a conviction in the wrong instance can have terrible effects. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. I am old enough to remember personally and viscerally the O.J. Simpson trial which happened soon after the acquittals of the police who had beaten Rodney King. And there was a lot of racial tension in the air. And um, I distinctly remember following that case, we, me and my friends, all white, middle, upper middle class people. And it was remarkable how the nation divided on that, uh, in that <clears throat> when the verdict was given, he was acquitted. Most blacks in America cheered. Most whites in America thought it was a miscarriage of justice. But at the same time, I was thinking it's a miscarriage of justice. I also thought it was a good decision for the country <laughs> because there was so much racial tension that at least it calmed that down for a bit. Now, I think you probably make a good point. Maybe something like that happening actually has worse long-term consequences than I imagine. But certainly at the moment, one can feel viscerally how that can solve a certain number of problems, if, even if it creates longer uh, problems that are even worse. I just think the idea of making a point in the justice system is so unfundamental to what justice is all about, right? Exactly. We have this idea right. of justice being blind, and when justice is peeking out from under that blindfold a little bit, or it feels like that at least, it kind of misses the whole point of what 
be trying to be done yeah. there. I think, and Alicia's point about what happened to Duke is a, is a perfect example of why that's a really, really bad idea. Now, how about when it comes to economic justice? Let's just talk about that briefly because Bernie Sanders complaint, among others, Elizabeth Warren made the same sort of complaint at, a, at other points about the economic system is rigged to favor the rich. The economy has always been rigged of, of political elections, justice system and economy. You could make a case that justice system, but I would say of those three, the economy has always been the most rigged. It has always favored mostly white men. The economic sectors that were prominent changed somewhat over time. You know, slave-owning plantation economy gives way to something else, northern industrialism. But yes, absolutely. The, um, the way that taxation is pursued, the way that wages and minimum wage and benefits. Yes, it has always, the, our economic system has always favored the powerful. And it's pretty impossible for me to imagine any time when it would not. What would you say then, Alicia, has allowed for the upward mobility that does exist in our country? Well, or has existed, right? Um, it's an open question whether children now will do as well as their parents. And we're not used to that. We are used to an upward trajectory, especially since World War II, which is about as far back as many Americans' uh, working memory goes. If you, if you put a half of the 20th century in, in, the, in the middle, there was a period of, not with the economic depression, but generally rising wages, uh, generally narrowing wage and wealth disparity um, you had your Gilded Age, 1890s, uh, your robber barons, Carnegie and Rockefeller, and these just fantastically wealthy men, um, and a lot of very, very poor, often immigrant laborers or, or newly freed slaves, but still very discriminated against laborers. Later in the 20th century, you get a, a, a shrinking wage and wealth disparity. Some of that was with the progressive taxation policies of the New Deal, um, some of that was unionization. Some of that was a need to have very high levels of employment for the war effort of World War II. And then you see increasing wage and wealth disparity towards the end of the 20th century. And then the question becomes, well, should we still think of the middle 20th century as normal? Or should we think of the middle 20th century as an aberration in a much longer pattern of elites having disproportionate, wildly disproportionate amount of the wealth and the power and everyone else just losing ground or gaining it so slowly that you hardly even notice. It does seem that we are an age in which we have increasing disparity, but my anecdotal evidence suggests that we also have a period when people still have opportunities, uh, certainly like they're not having in other countries of the world. I speak anecdotally because my wife works for World Relief. Her job is an employment counselor uh, to resettle refugees who come to this country. And the number of stories of refugees who come here and start out at minimum wage, and before you know it, they're buying homes and cars and all sorts of things. I mean, their trajectory is, is quite remarkable, and they're actually hope, as soon as they step onto American soil, is finally I'm going get to a, get to a place where I can do some hard work and get rewarded for it. <laughs> and then we also have ex tons of examples, especially in this election, of people who seem to be stuck in lower middle class living standards and seem to have no hope of moving forward. So it's a very complex picture right now. And it does always depend on compared to what. Exactly. Are we comparing the experience of recent immigrants to the experiences of white people without a lot of educational attainment in Kentucky or Western Pennsylvania or West Virginia? Um, and, and the compared to what also matters 
in influencing how people feel they're doing economically. There's been a fair amount of journalistic exploration of the Trump supporters. Are they really the poorest, those most disadvantaged by globalization, or are they people on a, a socioeconomic rung above that, but who feel that they are slipping? So it's not even absolute um, wealth and economic prospects, but the, the perception of comparative economic prospects. We're in a period when democratic systems that are supposed to promote justice uh, are seen to be promoting injustice. I think we've we've agreed that there are certain elements of those charges that are just completely false and other others that have a measure of truth in them. But it's certainly a time when people are skeptical of our democratic institutions. A lot of people are. So what, and Alicia, and what in your view is the role of the church and individual Christians at a time like this when, uh, what does it mean to work for the common good in a time when people are extremely skeptical of institutions that are supposed to bring justice? In my role as an educator, my emphasis on claims require evidence um, is is one aspect of trying to, down the road or, or in my classroom now, foster at least a, a, a ground on which discussion can happen. I don't need you to agree with me politically. I need you to agree with me that claims require evidence because we can work with that. Um, if, if we don't agree on that, then I'm not really sure what we can talk about or what we can work on together. For local churches, my hunch is that staying with a local focus is going to be more useful and um, a better gospel witness. I don't really want a lot of discussion of national politics in my church. I think of it as a safe space to have that conversation if people in the church thought it was appropriate. It's not that I'm afraid of that, but I would rather see my local church engaging with racial and economic justice in our neighborhood rather than trying to take um, high-level positions on high-level issues. Even though this wasn't necessarily around at the time that America became a country, I think public education really plays an important role here. We often see public education as the the gateway through which people will be able to achieve the American dream. And part of achieving the American dream, right, is believing that American institutions have your best interest in heart. And so the extent to which people have no belief that public schools will actually provide opportunity for them to be able to launch them into jobs, to participate in the economy more fully, to be able to be, I almost want to say, respected in the criminal justice system, right? None of that works if we can't actually trust the schools. And so the extent that Christians decide that public education is something that's really important to them, it also has the advantage of being very localized. And so most school districts out there, although they're influenced both nationally and at the state level, there are local school boards to be a part of. And it also turns out to be a matter of where your children are going to school. Having said all of that, too, I think that having a broader vision for public education beyond what your neighborhood school is and not and asking not only does your school serve your children, but do the other schools in the larger area serve other people's children as well um, goes a long way in being able to to restore some of this confidence. Christians are feeling, especially conservative Christians, are feeling like the education system is not permitting them, in a sense, to articulate or even be the person that they uh, feel they are called to be, especially when we're talking about the area of sexual ethics, that the sexual ethic of uh, traditional Christians is pretty much a 
uh, a pariah point of view in the public school, in many public school systems. So they're not feeling welcome there for the first time in maybe our country's history. And that's creating some tension there as to how much and how far we can support public education. There is estrangement from a lot of American Christians from their public schools on the topic of sexual ethics. But the divestment of many white American Christians started with integration, not sexual ethics. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. And I was just going to say, if if Christians were to leave over something like sexual ethics, I think whenever we're going to be making principled stances for why we don't agree with something, they're just recognizing that there's often a corporate cost of pulling out of a larger system. And so even though it, there's a sense of benefiting your family, society overall may grow weaker. You know, you're encouraging other people to also pull out of that same institution if it does not fit for you. It's for, for better or for worse, like it's a highly individualistic approach about whether or not you want to participate in a system. We'll have to have a conversation about that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Mark did not want the podcast to go for two and a half hours. We are moving into a segment of our show we call Precious Moments, which is basically something that's giving us joy in life. And today I thought we'd talk about uh, one thing that brings a lot of people joy and sometimes sadness is sports. So what is your favorite sport to watch and why do you find it so fascinating? Morgan Lee. So I think my favorite sport to watch is women's gymnastics, partially just because I love it. I usually watch it when the Olympics are on. I guess I'm not a diehard in that way, though I did grow up watching it a lot. So I like watching it for a couple of reasons. One, because I did gymnastics for a period of time in my life. And so there's some sense of I think I kind of know what these other gymnasts are going through, which is not really true because I was like seven or eight when I competed and they are all 10 years older than that. But also just because I have so many memories of watching it in my household. And I think it's one of the few sports that like you can't necessarily appreciate if you were going to listen to it on the radio. Mark is like very surprised at me that I didn't say baseball, but I don't really like watching baseball on TV. I like listening to it. I guess the other thing I would say is figure skating. It's it's a toss up between those two. And people who want to follow me, I am on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. Very good. Alicia. I'm a pretty fierce partisan of Duke basketball. Ah, um, you were converted while you were there. No, I was fond of Duke basketball. They were very good when I was in high school. Um, and I was in high school in the state of Indiana where everything shuts down for March Madness. Um, teachers don't teach. Students don't go to school. It's like deer day in Pennsylvania at the beginning of deer hunting season. It's just dead. Nobody's there. So if you're going to have any conversations in the state of Indiana in March, you have to be following college basketball. And Duke was the power at that time for me. So then it was wonderful to be there for grad school. And it's very involved to get to go to Duke basketball games, even as a graduate student, but I did camp out five of my six years and um, still really enjoy that. There's nothing like watching a game in Cameron Indoor, though a close second would be watching a, a Cubs game at Wrigley. They are also my team. So I'm very happy that they're in the World Series, but I was not happy about last night's game. Uh, Alicia, where can they find you if they want to listen to what you have to say to the world? Well, I, I blog monthly at Religion in American History. I do not do the Twitter. Um, perhaps that will be ahead for me. But um, yeah, that's about it. Religion in American History. Well, I'm fitting to stereotypes. I'm one of those old guys that likes actually likes to watch golf. I like thought you might say that, but then you really <laughs> said it. <laughs> well, the reason is, is because golf is one of the few sports you can participate in in the same more or less setting that professionals do. 
And so when you're watching them play a hole or uh, attack a certain problem or try to get out of a certain uh, sand trap, uh, you can go to that course or you can go to courses similar to that and you have played that shot or you have not, or, and you've not played it well and you watch them play it and you go, wow, I know how hard that is. I really do know how hard that is. And he just did it. She just did it. I actually prefer to watch women in this respect. Women's game is more in, in uh, perspective to an amateur's game. So you treat it like an instructional video, kind of. For the most part, yeah. Because it isn't, certainly watching golf as an entertainment medium is not that great. But it is a, it, if you're into the game of golf, it is, it is amazing to watch. Where can people find you? Oh, people can find me uh, not on Twitter. Um, not a Twitter guy, not a Facebook guy, except for my immediate family. But I do write something called the Galley Report every week. And if you go to uh, Christianity Today slash Galley Report, you can figure out how to subscribe to that. It's free. I, I put links and comments to things I find really interesting. For and you subscribe now, you'll get it in your inbox on Friday. So you should do it. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Quick to Listen this week. As a reminder, we are on Twitter at CT Podcasts. We are on Facebook at facebook.com slash ctpodcast and we welcome all of your feedback there quick to listen is a production of christianity today and you can find our other podcasts by searching itunes for christianity today or your other podcast places as well remember to head to orderct.com slash quick to listen to subscribe for a lowest price of ten dollars quick to listen is produced by richard clark and cray allred and you can subscribe to our show on SoundCloud, on Stitcher, on Overcast, on all the other apps that you might use to find your podcasts. But if you like the show, we ask that you go to iTunes to rate and review it because that's where it helps us the most. We'll see you all next week. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.